Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Beats of the Market podcast. I'm Ed Martin. I'm excited to be back. Thank you for your patience with the release schedule. It has been a little hectic with travel and just the holiday seasons in general. Always seems to be a lot going on. I'm excited to look back over the year and have some concluding thoughts for 2022. If you're anything like me, then you're excited to start the new year and put that positive energy forward. I know I am. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for the support. Let's dig right into this. Friday, December 16th, we are recording episode 22 of the Beats of the Market podcast. I just want to say thanks so much to those who have continued to support this podcast and have been active listeners. Thanks to Curtis for initially pushing this idea. I didn't know how this was going to play out when I first started it or how the content would be shaped. But the one thing that I like about what we've been doing is having these calls, whether it's the crypto collapse with FTX or Binance, which is now halting withdrawals, and seeing if those things come true. Also, I have a price target for Tesla of around $50. At current prices, that would be $2,000 pre-split before the era of private funding or you know Elon saying he would take the company public at 420 which was essentially securities manipulation he was charged with a fine for that anyway thanks so much for keeping up with everything on this episode i will cover a little bit of some developments in the fund space i think as most people have seen the sam bankman freed trial is uh, or i should say proceedings are now in the mainstream media I think this will play out very similar to Wirecard and Theranos, which coincidentally, Wirecard is the trial in Germany is now active and that is expected to take a few years to dig through all of the crimes that they committed. Theranos too, we had Sonny Balwani, I believe is his name. He was given a sentence of 13 years. Elizabeth Holmes has 11 if that is any roadmap to what we could expect for Sam, I would expect somewhere between 15 and 20 years. It was quite a lot of damage he had done. Old-fashioned embezzlement. Those were the words of John Ray III, who is the restructuring CEO, who I listened to his congressional testimony last week. That was fantastic. As some listeners know, I have been short Silvergate, which is the bank that process the accounts for Alameda Research, and that is just a load of crooks over there. It is a mess. The stock is down 85 or about 88% from a high of, I believe, 300 or 200 down to just $18 a share. While the testimony was happening live, 
Silvergate sold off about 12%. I covered about 75% of my short. I don't like being greedy in this environment. I am very happy how that played out. I do think that that company will go bankrupt, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's a dollar stock by the end of next year. Going to continue to monitor the proceedings with Silvergate. They are responding to a legal letter from Senator Elizabeth Warren by Monday. They have been forced to come up with a uh, legal response and their name is all over the accounts from the Bahamas. It looks like a serious amount of money laundering in the amounts of more than $100 million. And the idea is that this bank, which is a seven, roughly $780 million uh, market cap bank, will be bankrupted by the fines that they're forced to pay as they lose their bank charter license. Now, with that being said, my problem with Silvergate on the short thesis which is partially why I covered the position, is that they have a large amount of U.S. treasuries in the reserve, which they are still quite liquid. They could liquidate those and conduct a share buyback, and with 40% short interest on the stock, that would send it parabolic, and I don't want to be trapped in a short position that gets uh, you know mainstream attention. I don't think the days of, of GameStop and AMC are here with us anymore where you get those you know tremendous short squeezes, but um, nevertheless, it's good to uh, take your chips off the table and, and count, count your wins. It is nice to walk away from that. So I just wanted to give an update on that. And in today's episode, I will do the usual. I will cover some little news clipping, some developments with funds. We have the uh, real estate funds in the US, particularly Blackstone Group, which has a REIT that's a real estate income trust. They have said that investors are trying to pull money out. And in response to this, the U.S. has gated withdrawals. And so what that means is they're limiting these real estate investment funds to a 5% withdrawal rate, withdrawal rate. And that's trapping 95% of the investors in this fund. The SEC is currently investigating if affiliates sold their holdings prior to clients. My guess is that's going to be a yes. Of course they did. If they had a chance to sell and run before the property bubble pops, uh, you know they're going to take their money and run. So that's something to keep an eye on here. Uh, just on Tesla, I am also short Tesla. I have a price target of 50 by the end of this year. It has lost about 60% of its value in just a year. It seems to be collapsing as Elon is dumping massive, massive amounts of stock uh, in the uh, in the market now. Normally, these guys would have a bank conduct block trades for them. It seems very desperate. Open market selling. He sold three point five billion dollars worth of stock last week, and uh, since his Twitter announcement on June of two thousand thirteen, which was that he said he would be the last one out of Tesla stock, so he would put his money in first and be the last one out. Since he lied about that, he has sold over $40 billion worth of stock. That's more than the entire company has made in earnings. That is a serious uh, red flag, in my opinion. And remember, he is tied to this $45 billion margin loan with Twitter. That means that the margin loan as collateral, he has posted Tesla share price. And so this is a nasty spiral for him because as he sells shares or he's getting margin called, it forces Tesla's stock even lower. And I like that. I like that he's trapped. I like that for a short thesis. It's still a $500 billion car company. Ford, for example, is 55 
and as the competition comes into the space and the capital markets get tighter, Tesla will begin to struggle as we go into a slowdown, which is being manufactured by the U.S. Federal Reserve. I would argue that they are leading the rate hike schedule, although there are some emerging markets and countries like Brazil that were early to the rate hiking cycle and as a result have positive real rates. The last thing I'll say about Tesla is for every person, assuming that they bought into the market, they didn't buy options, they bought the stock. If you are a Tesla shareholder and you bought in from November of 2020, you have lost money. So basically, all, if we assume that everyone that bought Tesla shares from November of 2020 on just bought them in the open market and wasn't trading around the share price, they have lost or they are underwater on their investment. It's pretty, pretty wild to think how far we've come as the sentiment changes. So we had the Fed meeting last week. We had the uh, PPI and CPI prints, consumer price inflation prints and producer inflation. And we're seeing some good progress. We're seeing some good progress. There's some pieces of that component that I didn't like. I think they are there is problematic inflation in wages and services. There was disinflation in the services print. So that means that service inflation month over month came down. I'm, I, would, I would count this as a win for the Fed here because we had a, a bit of a drop off. Now going from 9% to 6% inflation, uh, disinflation, it, it's not, that's not the hard part. The hard part is going from six to two and particularly six to four. The average time it has taken countries that have that level of inflation to get down is more than five years. So when the bankers come out and they say that they are going to have 2% inflation in two years, I think that is a load of bullshit. And we had a really interesting market response. We had Jerome Powell come out and uh, jawbone the markets down. Markets didn't like it. At first, the markets were fighting it. They were calling his bluff. They were saying, we don't think you're going to raise interest rates. And um, yeah, you learn the hard way when you fight the Fed. So the trend is your friend and the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve is telling you, we want to slow down the economy. We want to cool down animal spirits in the economy and we'll give you a 4.5% one year yield if you stick your money in a bank account, whether it's a CD or a one year treasury. I think that's a fantastic opportunity for the short term. Uh, so they're basically giving you 4.5% to sit back and uh, eat popcorn and watch everything, all the frauds blow up. I like this part of the cycle, and we are not just seeing frauds come out in the, um, in the, uh, the crypto space and some of these other, uh, I, I think we're going to start to see it in these ESG funds too, but we're starting to see it in government where we had the EU um, bust, up, uh, bust up a corruption ring with... Um, I forget her name, but they were basically accepting bribes. I believe it was Qatar and uh, it took place in Belgium there. So you're starting to see some of these uh, government actors. There's Eva Kali. She's arrested on EU corruption charges. Foreign policy chief of the EU has said that the charges are very, very worrisome. We had this also in the U.S. where we had the two. We had the Dallas and the I believe it was Chicago Fed bankers who were trading on inside information. So they were front running Americans. And uh, it was pretty disgusting behavior. They were forced to resign. And then one of them used his daughter's cancer as an excuse to, for his resignation. I just thought that was really disgusting behavior. Um, but point is, Europe is lagging the US rate hike cycle. So as we saw that in the US, we're starting to see it in Europe. I think that will be a trend that continues. 
as the money dries up, so it warmed, the words of Warren Buffett, the tide goes out and you get to see who's swimming naked. You have uh, fraud and corruption in all sorts of places that are just, it's just now being exposed. I haven't really been tracking the, the actual index levels, but for the NASDAQ 100, those tech stocks, they've failed to break their 200 day moving averages, which act as support when you get above those levels for 174 days. That is the um, longest time tech indexes have failed to break moving averages in over 20 years. And so I would just say, this looks like a combination of .com where you had all these people that were pushed into growth names from the 90s on and the 80s, where you had the oil shock that led to a double dip recession going into 84. Remember, Volcker's initial response to the rate hike was to succumb to political pressure. And then that second hike was really what killed it when inflation came back. This looks similar to that. With the telecom bubble in 2000, 2001, it took three years for the market to settle and the Nasdaq lost about 75 or 80% of its value. It was just gut wrenching and everybody just kept buying the dip and it just went lower and lower. So I could really see something similar to that, especially if we don't get the inflation down to a tolerable level. I've heard some pretty smart people say they think the Fed is going to adjust their target to three. I don't think so. I think the Fed has a credibility problem in its rearview mirror, which is still uh, lingering, and they've got the egg on their face. And so they can't risk the institutional credibility by adjusting inflation targets yet. Maybe that comes later. But for now, if they can get core inflation down, and we remember we have those comments from Stanley Druckenmiller, where he has said, Inflation has never gone under 5% without the Fed funds rate needing to go over it. So we have a target rate of 4. We have an effective rate, Fed funds rate of 3.8. We have roughly 4. Point, I believe 4.7 or 5.1% or core. And so that 5% seems to be the sweet spot. And even if it's not high enough and something breaks, they're going to keep rates there. You know, they are getting a bit of elevation here. Maybe that is to cut at a later date. But they, you know, Jerome Powell is committed to what he's doing. He's already made the mistake. He kept the money printer on or made that decision to, you know, print too much money in the beginning. And now they are possibly making the mistake of tightening too much. And so I'm not sure if that's the case yet. I don't think anybody really knows what the terminal rate on Fed funds is. A lot of people say it won't go over five but I think about it as a reaction function rather than a proactive function where they steer the car hard in one direction and then they have to overcorrect. And that's always been the case with the Fed and central banks in general. Some countries have much more proactive central banks, particularly in emerging markets or you know developing nations. Where they just can't afford to have these inflationary problems. And so they're, uh, you know, Scandinavia is a little bit like that where they're a bit more proactive and when they start seeing signs of a bubble, they are quick to raise rates as where the U.S. is more of a boom and bust cycle. It is just the nature of the game. I just want to talk real quick to the wages and services component of inflation. We are seeing some pretty wild numbers in Europe 
Uh, Lufthansa, for example, has just raised their sales guidance by 40%, so they must be expecting some big numbers this holiday season. Spirit Airlines has increased the FO pay by 43%, captains by 25%. That gives them a cumulative average weighted wage increase of 34%. And this is really a common trend in the service and skilled worker industries. And I think a lot of that is because the retire the, the gray-haired pilots and retirees are just uh, leaving the workforce in droves. And so this goes to our earlier comments about the bifurcation of the labor market, where it's really split into two, where you have the white collar and the blue collar. And uh, Jerome Powell himself said, we are short 4 million people of jobs in the U.S. That is a massive amount of workers. And so as companies fight over labor, the wages get more competitive. And that is particularly common amongst skilled worker groups. And this example here that I just gave you from the airlines is uh, it's just really wild to see that. And so nobody knows how hard this recession is going to have to be that gets manufactured to crush uh, wages here. When I looked at the components of inflation energy really came off a cliff. And so that sell-off in crude from 120 down to 70 has been a huge relief in the inflation metrics. We have home prices that are still lagging, so those are likely to come down. So it could be, the argument could be that the Fed is over-tightening because rent is expected to come down as mortgages stay in the, uh, up here in the, the nosebleeds. But I see Problems still with wages and services, especially with the uh, the worker shortage that we have. And that's really a global thing. It's not just the U.S., but we will see. Maybe they have to pause and just keep things here for six to 12 months and see how inflation expectations and core inflation reacts. Maybe another 25 or 50 bips is too much. It's just difficult to say. So I don't want to go out and make that call. I initially thought that the U.S. was going to have a massive inflationary problem because of their QE policies in COVID. That's part of the reason why I didn't jump headfirst into the the COVID bubble, because I just thought, wow, the U.S. is running the hyperinflation playbook. And how long is this going to go on? And now I will admit that I'm a bit happier with where things have gone. And it looks like they have cleaned up a lot of the, the mess that they have created. Um, but they're still not out of the woods yet. We have yet to see how the geopolitical theater plays out. There are some things that could happen that could put the U.S. in a real pinch. And uh, hopefully those things don't happen. We've talked about a lot of those things on other episodes. And um, yeah, well, so uh, th- that's pretty much it for the macro side of things here. I didn't really want to get so specific into, uh, you know, energy and so on. But in Germany here, we are having energy rations. The government has said we they want a collective temperature of about 19. And that uh, I think that's fair. So 19 degrees Celsius seems like a fair number. I was expecting the rations a little bit earlier. I was thinking more of October, but we just had such an unusually warm winter that now those numbers are coming in. And Germany is talking about getting uh, energy from Qatar. So the futures contracts that Qatar wanted to sell to Germany, they wanted to bind them into longer term. I think Germany initially wanted the shorter term contracts, but it appears that they have worked something out. And they are talking with Kazakhstan out of all people for running oil. And I think that just speaks a little bit to the desperation of the 
German government that they are willing to deal with some of these countries that run pipelines through Kazakhstan runs through a, a couple places that could be problematic, but the, but Germany is saying, hey, we need it. Our industrial uh, service, you know, our and our industry is is falling apart from energy prices. We had BASF announce a permanent decline in chemical output that is considered to be the world's largest chemical provider. So those shortages can compound and affect other industries. That's enough about the uh, the finance side here. What did I, I just wanted to spend some time thinking about what I learned in 2022 and some of the mistakes and some of the things that I did really well. One thing I realized is that we need to put a huge importance on market history. I never realized how well you can navigate markets if you have an understanding of similar cycle history. That has proven to be very, very useful. I think market historians will do very well in this environment as opposed to traditional fund managers. So I'll start with some of the mistakes that I made. I had a few times where I had too much conviction on certain positions in my portfolio that could have been short or long. I actually had one of those on the long side today where I am overly confident in a price target and an evaluation that I see that's not reflected in the market. And uh, so you're overweight something, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 percent of your portfolio in one name. That's very risky to run concentration like that. So I got cleaned on one of those positions and sold off and took the loss. And conversely, that led to so that was a mistake I actually made today, uh, just kind of sizing into a position that that was a bit too high risk. And then throughout the year, I realized that I prefer to take small positions with high upside. And that might mean multiple positions. There's a discussion about what's the optimal amount of stocks in a portfolio. Some people say 20 to 40. I think that's a load of bullshit. I think if you pick the right names or you pick the right companies, you're in the right sectors and you have good portfolio management and you're taking small calculated bets with high upside, then you can you can do really, really well. And I've had a lot of a lot of these smaller positions end up being bigger positions because they it was the right the right pick. And so portfolio sizing, position sizing to me over this year became the most challenging and important aspect of portfolio management. How much money do you put on one name or where do you I, I think that that has been an incredible learning experience. I personally like the one to three percent position sizes. And then if I'm running kind of like a core or I have a, a high conviction short, that might be a, a much larger position. I won't go into the specifics of that because everybody's situation is different. But that was something I learned a lot this year. I think also that I underestimated how important it is to understand government policy and geopolitical risk inside market and valuation structure. For example, I was wrong on oil prices because I underestimated how much the government could influence energy cost in the short term. In the long term, I don't think the government has that big of a effect on energy prices because it is a supply and demand issue. Now, with that being said, governments can affect oil prices if they reduce production. If there's a supply shortage of, of 
energy or OPEC or one of these foreign countries cuts production and shuts the tap off, that's the whole thing with Russia, right? Where, where they send oil sky high, then, uh, you know, that can have a huge effect. And so I started to realize that when you're getting into a narrative, when people are calling for two or $300 oil, it's time to step back and say, this is a bit ridiculous. The government has this right in their crosshairs. And if they're going to whack energy prices down by manufacturing a recession, uh, even if it's short term, then, uh, you know, you need to price that into your risk. And I think I was a bit naive on that. Again, in capital cycles, we have, I talked about focusing on the supply rather than the demand side. And that's true. I think there's ways to play certain sectors and assets or cycles that are attractive. You just need to know the right way to do it. It might not be through the producers or the exploration and discovery. It might be some other pick and shovel play attached to the sector. For me, it was important to understand how much pricing power that particular company had and how do they respond in the current environment. I like to focus on things from a top-down approach. So that could be pick a country that's attractive, then pick a sector, use interest rates as a guide, as a rule of thumb, find countries where growth is positive, or if it's not positive, and everything is slowing down, find a sector that benefits or is recession-proof, as they say. I don't really think recession-proof is a real thing because in sell-offs, correlation goes to one, so you start to see things really just sell down altogether. Another thing I would say that really stuck out to me and just uh, for a matter of discipline, when you're getting into positions, do it when it feels bad because you want your emotion out. So if you're entering a position, I would like to buy on red days. I like to accumulate shares when things are selling off. So on days like today where the markets are selling off one or two percent or you have these panics, I like to buy because it feels bad and because I'm going against I'm being a contrarian, I'm getting in at a lower price. And I've had to ask myself at times, if this asset that I own falls 50%, would I buy more of it? Has the thesis changed? Does it affect their ability to raise capital? Is it just a overreaction? Or is there something fundamentally shifting here? Are insiders or directors or is the CEO dumping shares? And is that affecting price action in a way that is perhaps changing the overall thesis of the investment? And that is also on the short side for some of these ESG names, which I've been looking at, particularly in the solar sector, which looks very similar to telecom companies in 2000, where the cost of capital is going up. They haven't made money. They're not going to make money. The money printer was on full blast and they still couldn't make money. And all the insiders used the virtue signals of governments to sell shares and enrich themselves. When I see those companies going up, four, five, six percent on a perhaps a bear market rally or on a big bounce day, I like to get start getting short, especially if the valuation doesn't make sense and the analysts are being paid by the companies to to support outrageous price targets. I've seen some of that on some of these frauds. It's amazing. So analysts are often wrong and be careful with that. Be careful with gurus 
I coattailed Charlie Munger into Alibaba thinking he's the smartest guy ever. And I got my face ripped off on that position. Luckily, it wasn't such a large position size. And I've since made much, much more money than I've lost on all of those decisions. But don't, I guess they say never meet your heroes. And I think there's some truth to that. Everybody has a different tolerance level and a different timeline. And that's the next thing I'll speak to is understand your time horizon. How long are you willing to endure a high level of of volatility uh, that moves against you? And are you going to use that volatility to your favor to enter or exit a position? I think in a lot of ways, market navigation and investing is a a counterintuitive science. It's almost subtractive, contrarian, where you buy when things go down, you sell when things go up. And uh, we tend to do, I've done it myself, done the opposite. I just think it helps build a little bit of discipline. Or if you're using, uh, uh, you know, market, you're not using market orders, you're using a specific price target or a, um, a, a limit order to enter at a set price. And you say, all right, if this falls from 25 to 18, I'll enter it. And so you put a, uh, you know, a limit order in at 18. I think that, that that's a really good way to, to establish good price entry levels too. All of that comes down to good discipline and understanding your timeline. I would say with the oil sector, I see a longer term higher price, particularly if there's a geopolitical incident or some sort of escalation in the east, which I am hoping that doesn't play out. I'm actually happy to see energy costs go down here. It means we have less inflationary pressure from energy. So those are some of my thoughts and some of the things that I learned throughout the year. There's been a bunch more just through all the books I've read and the history. It's been really, really great. I will continue reading a lot going forward. I think the focus more on the historical side and some of these people like the Vanderbilts that help explain how we got to where we are today or the Rockefellers that broke up into the five sisters, which are the large energy companies like Exxon, BP, and so on. That's important to understand from a macro point of view. If I had to make some calls for 2023, I would say the crypto ecosystem is in trouble and it's going to continue to face headwinds, particularly regulatory headwinds going forward because the love of crypto was based out of the lack of regulation, which turned it into a predatory junkyard for scammers and money launderers and all sorts of bad actors. And it unfortunately attracted a lot of people who didn't deserve to lose money and be hurt in the process. But this is always a function and a consequence of reckless monetary policy. When bubbles are blown, you start to see all sorts of malfeasance come out in the system. So that would be my first prediction. My second prediction would be that we eventually see a recession, probably Q2 or Q3. I believe the corporate layoff cycle is going to really start to accelerate in growth names in quarter one after the holidays. I think after the holidays, in towards the end of January, companies are going to start laying off white collar workers much more aggressively as they deal with these cost pressures. So that would be my second prediction. Third would be 
that we have spy down to at least 3,200 or 3,000. And we see the names that everybody piled into, like the Fangs, which was once upon a time Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, you know, Netflix, Google, and so on. A lot of those names have been taken to the cleaners already, but there's some concentrated names that haven't been. There's this quote, first they shoot the soldiers, then they shoot the generals. And so the generals in the market, the massive market cap companies that are starting to decline or, or starting to, to run flat uh, with higher cost and lower sales growth, I think they're going to face some real problems. Um, that's part of my short thesis on Apple. I like Apple as a short one because I consider it to be a tail hedge against the indexes because it's so overly packed into ETFs. It's just such a crowded name and the growth is really starting to decelerate and I see supply chain issues and some problems with their factories going forward here. It's also just a darling. Uh, so shorting it, it feels very contrarian. And if the market rips higher, it's not such a large short position that it causes problems. My cheaper value companies tend to move with a higher beta than Apple and some of those other names. I've also reduced a bit of my Apple short. I was short the shares. I've covered a bit of that for a profit and have since switched out to put options with a time frame between April of next year and January of 2024. And those put options have so far been the right decision. If we have a large move to the upside here and we break 4,000 on SPY again, just using that as a benchmark, then I would look to, to gobble up some more put options on those names. I just don't think the valuation here makes sense. And we're really starting to see that higher interest rate the discount rate for, for future value, the FE value calculation. So as your discount rate goes up, you tend to have lower valuation on, on future cash. With that being said, I think there are some wonderful value opportunities that have or will present themselves over the next couple of years. I have found a lot of value in distressed investing in the real estate sector. I am looking at New York and U.S. real estate, commercial, uh, like shopping malls and so on. They are just priced to the apocalypse level. They are under 08 prices. They are priced like nobody will ever go into a shopping mall ever again. These are some stocks that have gone from 100 down to $10. And, uh, you know, they might be down here for two or three years. Fine. Who knows? But they're either going to get bought up by somebody else or we'll, you know, hopefully have some sort of recovery. But I just don't see shopping malls disappearing forever. So I like that sector. I also like the office, the office sector, because I think work from home is dead. I think work from home really screwed a lot of office real estate companies and businesses were quick to send people home to work from home. And I think that trend is, is, is going to reverse. I think that the, the work from home economy is going to shift back to its kind of original ways. There will still be lots of people that work from home and some of those jobs and careers have probably saved the businesses lots of money. So there will be work from home jobs and they will survive. And there, there is a logical reason for that to survive. But I think a lot of these other jobs 
are going to have workers come back to the office. And so I like the office um, sector. It's really, really beat down. It's in trouble. And so what I look for is these companies that slash their dividends so they can no longer afford to pay out dividends. They slash them. The uh, you know They get dumped. So the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Bath They're totally hated. And the valuation just runs into the floor. And so you end up with like 500 or 600, you know, million dollar companies that are doing four or five billion in sales. And, you know, they have a lot of debt. They're distressed. I get it. But they're medium termed out or they're termed out long term. So they can find ways to finance or they have large revolving credit or, you know, credit revolvers where they can, you know, kind of dip into their piggy bank and, uh, and, maintain survival uh, that's tough but again those are like those small little things so i bought a ton of stuff like that like little one and two three percent positions with uh, a lot of upside some of them have done well well some of them have not and uh, for other sectors like that i also really like the offshore drilling sector that in the 70s and 80s was like 15 or 20 companies it has since consolidated to about four or five i won't name those names but i think offshore drilling is real a really interesting sector one because it's down like 90 or 95 percent so these were some of them 300 dollars stocks that are three or four dollar stocks they are insanely cheap they are getting so much business they are increasing increasing their rig counts and these uh governments that are like trying to create a sunshine grid or a renewable energy grid are struggling to keep up with energy supply and capacity to meet the grid. And so what I find that's been happening is they're contracting these offshore drills to get energy back online. And that's an interesting thesis because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So if you're a company that has a, a green government and you're buying all these offshore drilling rigs, you know, there's no shitty journalist out in the middle of the ocean to come beat you on the head with a stick and, and throw paint all over your gear. And uh, the, the, these are kind of like stealth contracts. So you can go out there and find those names. I like that sector a lot. And we'll see how that plays out. I'm sure there's going to be, you know, at some point there's going to be a time, an opportunity to buy growth. You know, there'll be a time to buy Apple. There'll be a time to buy Microsoft. For me, now is not the time. So I am not looking at growth names. I am, uh, you know, waiting to see how the slowdown plays out. I think we are going into a stagflationary bear market a type of recession environment with stagnating growth and higher higher core inflation. And I'm looking for the value names that, that have historically performed well in those times. I'm kind of using a combination of the 1930s, the 1970s, and 1980s as a roadmap. The combination of those two times is based on the thesis, one, that you have a Fed that over-tightens that leads to a deflationary shock like you had in the 30s. And then two, you have a double-dip recession based on energy supply shock, either from the Yom Kippur War or OPEC cartel shock that leads to higher you know, supply-side inflation. And, uh, and, and what did well in that time. And, and we've talked about that on previous episodes, what has done well. So I'm just kind of looking all over and, uh, you know, excited to go forward here. So those, that's pretty much all my thoughts. I just wanted to uh, say what I learned this year and kind of close on a positive note. I didn't want to be so, uh, you know, down in the dumps. And I hope everybody is, is doing well and gets some time to spend with their family and, and time to to reflect 
on how their, you know, how their, their year has been. It's been a kind of weird two years. I think everybody's ready to close, close the, the, the door on, on, on 2021, 22, uh, 20, 2020, 21, 22 have all been kind of weird years and we're just ready to get onto the new year. And I'm really excited about that to make the most of it and, uh, you know, see what, see what comes. So I, um, will continue reading. I'll continue providing some, some output. I have been working on a bit more of the chill electronic stuff around 140 BPM. Sometimes that splits to 70. So it's runs a little bit slower. Sometimes it's a little more breakbeat. I have been listening to a lot of 80s music. I love the 80s. Um, it has been a lot of stuff like Owner of a Lonely Heart um, or you know, Hold the Line from Toto, that kind of stuff. I've really been digging it. I love the vocal energy and the synthesizers and that kind of music. So it's been, it's been really cool. So I'll be heading to the UK next week. I won't have access to my recording, uh, my recording studio until the... 3rd of January. So it is likely that I won't have an episode out until then. And I just want to say thanks so much for listening. I hope if you've learned at least one thing out of any of these episodes you've listened to. And um, also, big shout out to Marka Hodes, who basically led the uh, <laughs> single handedly led the government to the FTX uh, scam. Sam Bankman has since been arrested. Justice is coming for these people who have been up to no good. We will see much more of this unravel. That is the nature of the fraud cycle. And uh, I'll try and uh, keep up with some, some new names, some interesting people in the space. Wishing you a happy new year. Much love to you and your families. And catch you on the next episode in 2023. entertainment purposes only nothing i say should be construed as investment advice and some of the securities i talk about may be actively held